Now, grab your Bible, if you will, and see if you can find the book of Jonah. And whereas that screen up there or that screen is correct, I am going to read uh, a little bit more than this, those three verses because I want you to get the whole, I want us to get a running start into the story. So we're in the book of Jonah. I'm going to start at verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 6. won't take long. It's brief. But hear now that which is inerrant, infallible, <clears throat> inspired. It's the very mind of God as black words on a white page. It begins this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now our text. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid, lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the, the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, I don't think there's many of us who would disagree um, that the most famous and the most popular parable that is listed in the entire New Testament is the parable of the prodigal son. But have you noticed the similarities between the parable of the prodigal son and the story of Jonah, at least up to this point in the story of Jonah? Have you noticed the similarities? I, I'm not the first one to notice this. In fact, it's not an original thought with me. But let me show you about four of the similarities uh, between the parable of the prodigal son, which you know, and the story of Jonah. Number one, the father in the parable of the prodigal son, um, that father has a prodigal son, and Yahweh, the heavenly father, he has a prodigal prophet. Um, two, they both, both the, both the prodigal son and the prodigal prophet, they both head off to the faraway country. Um, third, both, of, both the son and the prophet defy the will of their father. And then finally, another similarity is that one of them experiences a famine. The other is caught in a storm. You know, I bet you neither one of those boys uh, ever said to themselves as they, was, as they were plotting their, uh, their escape, they, they probably never said, oh, but what if I run into, a, a, what, what if there's a famine? Oh, what if I get caught in a storm? 
You know, sin has a way of blinding us to the consequences of our choices, does it not? Oh, those those blasted storms. Those uninvited, those invading storms that we never counted on. Be that as it may, um, I want you to notice that our text begins with, but the Lord. Um, It's God's turn now. Up to this point, Yahweh has has not interfered with, with Jonah's plans, but he can afford to wait. That is, God can afford to wait. He has so many famines, so many storms at his disposal to do his bidding God is never at a loss for means uh, in bringing men to their senses. Sin, however, is often the cause of the storms that are in our lives. I want you to notice this, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to look long and hard at it. Notice the text does not say that a great wind arose. It doesn't say that, does it? It says the Lord hurled a great wind. The Lord hurled it. That word hurl is found four times in this chapter. But on this occasion, it's very serious. It wasn't that, oh, by and by, unfortunately, coincidentally, a storm happened. No, that's not what the text says. It says the Lord was behind it. The Lord hurled. You know that thing in your life that is so unmanageable? Maybe that the Lord hurled it there. You know, um, our culture, our culture speaks of nature as the reality and God as the fiction. In this story, nature, nature is a servant, just doing what God tells it to do. She's not a mother nature. She's a servant nature. And then one other thing that I don't want you to miss. Do you see in this story how Jonah's sin affects so many others around him? Guys, sin never occurs in a vacuum. It's one of the rules of sin. (laughs) Even my most private sins affects other people. In this story, it happens to be those sailors, those mariners. 
But, but in my life, I often thought about this. You know, Susie and I had um, three girls. And I remember thinking, in, in fact, Susie and I discussed it several times. I can do something stupid. I still have the potential to do something stupid, ladies and gentlemen. But, but back then, I, I can do something stupid, really bad. Make a bad choice. And I'll go down. But when I go down, Susie and the girls would go with me. You see, sin doesn't occur in a vacuum. You remember the story of Achan? Remember that story? Joshua chapter 7. Uh, it was right after Israel had defeated Jericho and, and God had instructed uh, the, the armies of Israel that every, all the spoil inside of Jericho was to be dedicated to destruction, burned up. But, but Achan took a couple of slabs of gold and some changes of clothes for his, uh, for his own personal use. And ultimately, when he was found out, he was stoned. But you did know he wasn't stoned alone, didn't you? His whole family was stoned with him. Because, you see, guys, our sin doesn't just affect us. Others get hurt by it. You know, there's no telling how many other boats were in this vicinity when this storm was hurled. All because Jonah decided that he wanted to defy God. You see, this storm is brought on by Jonah's sin. And so many get hurt by it. You see, the consequences of his sin extend far beyond Jonah. And by the way, uh, where is Jonah all the while? Oh, gosh, we're told Jonah is uh, asleep. Now, l- l- let, me, let me pause and just <laughs> redirect your thoughts just quickly because I'm not going to develop this idea. But this is, you see, one of the audiences for the message of the book of Jonah, besides us, one of the audiences was supposed to be Israel because it was Israel who refused to, to broadcast the gospel to the Gentiles. Israel was asleep on the job. So one of the intended audiences was guilty Israel. Wake up, guilty Israel, and, and go do your job. I wonder if the church ought to hear that. But back to Jonah. Jonah. In us. Where is he? Oh, he's asleep. You know, I've got real peace while I'm uh, uh, in the midst of my sin. Jonah is the calmest man on board this ship. He snores in his sin. Guys, how, how, how does that happen? How does a man in the midst of his overt rebellion before God, how does he sleep? Well, remember, this is early on in this whole story. This is after the sin, but before any of the the consequences of it. But I think we all know, and we've seen it. 
We've seen it happen in our own lives, ladies and gentlemen. We've watched that over time, how our once sensitive consciences have become numbed by degrees. And then we find ourselves in a storm. A storm that God hurled. You know, we never read in this portion of the story that Jonah ever prays. We, we're going to see him pray, but he's going to be inside the belly of a fish. But we never see him here praying, even though everybody else on the boat's praying. You, you know that in your defiance, it's really impossible to pray. How, how, how would you pray? Would it go something like this? Oh, God! I thank you that you've enabled me to defy your commands and to uh, uh, ignore your instructions, and I am now enabled to flee from your direct activity. Is that what you pray? You know, guys, this is a strange sight. Pagans praying while God's servant sleeps. The pagans preach to the prophet. The pagans summon the prophet to prayer. The one who could have made some sense out of all that was going on, he's asleep. In contrast, look at these pagan sailors. The mariners, the text calls them. In the face of this storm, in the face of their helplessness, they're terrified. Which is really not very uh, uh, customary for this seasoned, salty, crusty bunch. But apparently something about the ferocity of this storm forced them to conclude that this was somehow different. that some God was behind this. And they're terrified. And in their terror, it has a way of changing our attitude, doesn't it? The storm that is so terrifying in my life right now. It has a way of changing the tone, doesn't it? You know, Chuck Swindoll swears that this story I'm about to tell you is true. I, I, it, it sounds so fanciful, but, but he swears that, it, in fact, he, he published it, this story that I'm about to tell you. I got this straight from Chuck Swindoll. But it's a, supposedly a true story. It was, uh, it's a story about a, uh, it happened years ago on a, on a flight that was headed to New York. Um, a, a flight that was normally, you know, pretty boring and, and routine. But this particular one was anything but routine. 
Um, while the plane was descending into its destination, the pilot noticed that the landing gear refused to engage. That is, the landing gear would not come down. And so he, he tried it again and again and again and, and tried to do, manipulate it somehow, and he, he couldn't get it. And so he radioed the, the control tower and told them the problem. And, of course, they commenced to um, all of these emergency proceedings. The, the runway was coated with this foam, and, and all the emergency vehicles uh, gathered around the runway while the, while the plane circled the runway, the, the airfield. Um, every move that he was making, he was broadcasting on the intercom to the passengers, and the, the flight attendants were flitting around the cabin, um, you know, trying to calm people down the best they could. And the flight attendants were instructing all the passengers to, to put their heads between their knees and grab their ankles. And there were all these shrieks and, and, and sobbing and, and crying out of, of the passengers uh, just moments before they, um, they, they, uh, of impact. And right before, just moments before they landed, uh, the, the, the pilot comes on the, um, the intercom and he says this, we are beginning our final descent. At this moment, in accordance with international aviation codes established at Geneva, it is my obligation to inform you that if you believe in God, you should commence prayer. <laughs> it's time to commence prayer. Um, the plane landed. No one was hurt. The plane was destroyed, but um, no loss of life. The next day, one of the relatives of the passengers that was on that plane called the airlines to ask them about this, um, this rule that was established in Geneva, this prayer rule that apparently the pilot had quoted. And the only response they could get from the airlines was no comment. It's amazing, isn't it? The only thing that brought out this open, deep-down, secret rule about prayer was, was a crisis. Pushed to the brink, back to the wall, right up to the wire, all escape routes closed. It's only then that our society seems to crack open the hint of a possibility that God may be there. And if he is, it's time to commence prayer. I, I remember seeing a, um, another similar story. It was about a news reporter who had gone up to the top of Mount St. Helens. Do you remember that? that was, Mount St. Helens, if you don't know what that is, that's a volcano in the state of Washington that uh, blew its top in 1980. And I mean spewed ash all over the region, and I think they're still cleaning up from the ash that was blown out of Mount St. Helens. But anyway, this reporter had gone up there to get a, a news story, and, uh, you know, he'd taken his camera, and, and, and uh, you know, it was kind of rumbling. But, but anyway, uh, unfortunately for him, 
uh, his timing was a bit bad, and he was up there right when the thing was blowing its top. And so he literally had to run for his life. And so he's running down the side of the mountain, but fortunately, or unfortunately, he, um, he left his camera on uh, with the microphone. And of course, the, the, uh, the pictures were unintelligible, and you couldn't use those because he's running the whole way. But the audio was real clear. And um, in the audio, he, um, he was saying things like this. Oh, God. Oh, my God, help, help. Oh, Lord God, get me through. God, I need you. Please help me. I don't know where I am. Sobbing, rapid breathing, spitting, gagging, coughing, panting. It's so hot. So dark. Help me, God. Please, please, please. He appeared on a new show a few days later. And that recording was played for him. And he said, I don't remember saying any of that. There is nothing that compares to a crisis. By the way, maybe you've heard it said like this. There are no atheists in foxholes. But there's nothing like a crisis to find out the hidden truth of the soul any soul we can mask it we can ignore it we can pass it off with some kind of cool sophistication and and intellectual denial but once you take away that cushion of comfort that um shield of safety and and interject the threat of death. And then it's pretty predictable that we will commence prayer. So these sailors they pray that universal instinctive act they're um, they're terrified but the problem at least one of the problems is they don't know what God to be afraid of and what's even a bigger problem is their private little gods don't exist Do you know that Sigmund Freud taught that it was a scene like this where God was created? Did you know that? That is, this is how God came into being because man was facing this, this far bigger problem than he himself could handle. So he creates the God. He creates the God of the storm so that he can pacify him and placate him. Well, did you notice their attempt to placate him? They're willing to part with the very thing that was the most precious thing in the world to them, at least prior to the storm. The cargo. 
All that a man has, he will give for his life. You know who said that? The devil said that. He said it to God about Job. There are moments, ladies and gentlemen, when all our possessions seem to be worthless. And and I, for one, wish that those moments would occur more frequently. Because we'd be different people. So why is it? Why is it, ladies and gentlemen, that it takes a crisis to remind people that their souls are infinitely more precious than earthly things? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You know who said that? That would be Jesus. And you who sit out there in your cool sophistication in your um, in the midst of your intellectual denial there's a storm coming so here's the situation as we have it this far in the story of Jonah um, you got a Hebrew prophet fleeing from a from a commission to reprove a heathen city who is himself reproved by terrified heathen. Um, it is the pagans that called the prophet to pray. His behavior is unthinkable even to pagans. This guy must be either insane or sick to respond to what, he, what they see around them. Even pagans know. And yet, unfortunately, the pagans misunderstand the terms upon which this God responds. They think that the way to get him to respond is to twist his arm. If if I can just turn the right key, that will get him. Then God will relent. He will will do what I ask him to do. If If I just pay a little penance, maybe maybe I can bribe him by writing a check because that's the way I get what I want from men I just give them what they want I just bribe them and as you know none of those attempts work but we're going to have to wait until next week to see what does work. But let me give you a hint this morning. It has to do with the sacrifice of one man so that the many 
might be delivered. Guys, did you know that Jesus Christ, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, he uses one of them to illustrate and explain his ministry? It's Jonah. It's, it's not the rebellion part. It's the three days that he spent in the belly of the whale part. But I want to suggest to you that there's another similarity between Jesus and Jonah. You see, folks, Jonah's death meant life for those terrified pagan sailors. It is the sacrifice of the one for the deliverance of the terrified many. Which is exactly what Jesus did. Guys, um, the prayer of fear that you see here, the prayer of fear is not necessarily the prayer of faith. But it might start there. I wonder that on this day, at this moment, at this very time, that there aren't a handful of you that are experiencing your own private storm, a crisis that has shaken you to the core. If so, Oh, might this be the day that you fling yourself, not bringing any of your supposed goodness with you. You throw that overboard. But you fling yourselves at the feet of mercy. You could say it like this. God, God, be merciful to me. The sinner. Our Father, the story that is contained in this small book was not one that was intended only for Israel. It's a story that's supposed to be used by us to remind us that, that our sin does nothing but bring about consequences that are so large, so, so effective, so affecting so many people. And, and I pray that if that's what's going on in the life of someone here this morning, that you will use it to remind them that the God that they're crying out to at this moment is a God who does exist. 
but he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that the God that does exist saves in one way and in one way only. And that being through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, would you, um, would you accomplish that great work of redemption in the lives of others this day, using their own life circumstances as that thing that drives them to the place where they want one thing, mercy. They can only get it from you. Accomplish that, Father, for your own glory. We pray in Jesus' name.